Well, hello there, history nerds and historians. I'm Christina, and this is F-Top History. This is where we talk about a little tidbit from history that's super fucked up. It's June, which means it's Pride Month. Yay! And I'm going to tell LGBTQ plus stories this month. So the LGBT plus community has been discriminated against for so long and the fight for equality is still not finished. Um, but today we are going to talk about one of the biggest events that was such a driving force in the gay rights movement and the whole reason why June is Pride Month in the first place. The Stonewall Riots of 1969 and how fucked up society was leading up to it and during and even after even today. So this is a long story and I definitely want to talk about what happened and some of the major people involved in this event. So I'm actually going to split this into two episodes. This week we're going to talk about a quick LGBTQ plus history in the United States that happened during the riots and its effects and the influences after and also some like quick history up until today. And then next week we're going to talk about three of the major figures from the Stonewall riots to really give these people the attention that they deserve. With both of these episodes, I do feel the need to give a little bit of a disclaimer that there are some indiscrepancies surrounding this because it isn't like it is today where if something's happening, we can just like whip out our phones and record everything and figure out exactly what happened and who did what. And these events of the Stonewall riots and other things around the Stonewall riots happened so quickly that honestly, it's not surprising at all that we don't exactly know the finite details of what happened. So, sit back, relax, and practice your, oh good god, what the fuck faces. Before we get to the main event of today's discussion, like I said, let's talk about some of the history that led up to the riots in the United States. And to do that, we are going to go all the way back. So when the United States was founded in the 18th century, there were quite a few anti-gay laws that were established, like sodomy being a capital offense and cross-dressing a felony that could land you in prison. Even though many historians argue that an openly gay man trained the American revolutionary soldiers and without him, there would not be a country. It would still just be colonies even today. He was, and I'm probably going to pronounce this terribly because I do not speak German, <laughs> um, the Baron Friedrich von Steuben. Von Steuben was a Prussian military man who was hired by George Washington to whip the revolutionaries into shape and made these men into professional professional soldiers. That is a very hard word to say back to back. Professional soldiers. But he was dismissed from the Prussian army for being gay and was pretty much blacklisted from enlisting in any other army for his, quote, familiarity with boys, end quote. Now that is not saying that he was um, a pedophile. It's just saying that he was in relationships with other men. But back then they kind of equated it the same if you were just sort of sexually divergent from a heterosexual relationship, then you were a sexual deviant and they all just kind of like lumped everyone together. So when he got to America, he was aided by Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence, which was an interesting choice on Washington's behalf because some historians believe that they were actually in a romantic relationship themselves. 
So during this time, there was like a lot more romanticized language used when speaking to friends and whatnot. Um, a lot of people bring up when trying to discredit this theory of Hamilton and Lawrence. But the letters between Hamilton and Lawrence were intense, even by those standards. I mean, in one letter, Hamilton wrote to Lawrence, quote, but like a jealous lover, when I thought you slighted my caresses, my affection was alarmed and my vanity piqued. I mean, all right, Hamilton, you get it. So going to the Civil War era, there are historians that speculate that Abraham Lincoln may have been in the LGBT spectrum. And there are also multiple Union soldiers who were openly gay. And then there's the whole Uranian poetry movement around this time, which was a small group of gay poets in England um, that emigrated into the US. So there are multiple same-sex relationships that are documented in the late 19th and early 20th century, including a former first lady. In 1914, we get the first LGBT film called A Florida Enchantment, which is a silent film about a woman who goes to visit her aunt in Florida, finds magic seeds that turn her into a man or at least a more masculine woman, and then she gets pissed off at her fiancé, so she gives him the seeds that turns him into a woman or at least a more feminine man, and they're still both attracted to each other in both forms. So some film critics say that the characters are actually like bi or pansexual, and it's based on a novel and play by Fergus Redmond and Archibald Clavering Gunter. So going forward a little bit, in the first half of the 20th century post-World War II, there was a lot more representation and visibility for the LGBTQ plus community. We had some LGBT organizations like the Society for Human Rights, which was formed in Chicago in 1924, which is the first documented group of homosexuals, which didn't last long because of police raids. And there were quite a few movies that had some LGBT actors and themes like Ray Bourbon, Billy DeWolf, Mae West. We had the first gay porno in 1929 called The Surprise of a Night. And there was a lesbian bar in Greenwich Village called Eve's Hangout in the 1920. But despite this visibility, people in the LGBTQ plus community were still being persecuted. Gay men were arrested and persecuted due to sodomy laws. People who engaged in group sex were arrested because of the same sex nature of at least one party, which is what happened to the singer Ma Rainey. The owner of Eve's Hangout, who would say, quote, men are admitted but not welcome, was deported after her club was raided and she was arrested for obscenity. Quote, homosexual acts were illegal in every state except for Illinois. Restaurant bars and other establishments could get shut down for employing gay people or just serving them in general. So in the 1950s, sodomy became a misdemeanor instead of a felony, but gay people were still persecuted. In the mid-1860s, we had just the era of like free sex and movements. You had like the civil rights movements and the anti-war movement and the feminine movement. So why can't there be an LGBTQ plus community movement as well? So the Madagene Society staged a sip-in in 1966 where a bunch of people got together in some bars and proclaimed their sexuality and dared the staff to turn them away. And bars who did were sued, which led to the Commission on Human Rights ruling that everyone had the right to be served in bars, which temporarily reduced police raids, but not for long. But some gay establishments in New York, um, I'm sure elsewhere as well, did have some extra protection from the mafia. 
So the Genovese family controlled most of the gay bars in Greenwich Village, including the Stonewall Inn, which they bought in 1966 and converted into a gay bar. Now, I have to say, <laughs> I didn't know this at all, and I fucking love it. The only thing that comes to mind for me when I hear of the Genovese family is Kitty Genovese, who was killed in broad daylight with witnesses, and it was later reported that no one did anything, even though that was later disproved, but that's like literally all I know about them, and I'm pretty sure I learned that from... Um, boondock saints. So when the Genovese family reopened the Stonewall Inn, it was uh, with a bottle bar license, which is essentially like bring your own beverage establishment. So it doesn't need a liquor license. Um, and then they bribed the police to ignore everything that was happening. And then in turn sold really, really watered down drinks without a liquor license. <laughs> so the bribes to the police didn't just cover turning a blind eye to the activities that you would find in a gay bar, but also that the Stonewall Inn didn't have a fire exit or running water to clean the glasses, and also for the police to look the other way when the mafia would blackmail the wealthy patrons at the Stonewall Inn. So the Stonewall Inn was one of the only gay bars in Greenwich Village that was welcoming to drag queens, and it was one of the only gay bars that allowed dancing. So just like now, many people discriminate against the LGBTQ plus community. But even within the LGBT community, there was during that time, I'm not so much sure now because I am surrounded by very open minded people and actually know quite a few drag queens. So I don't experience this. But back then, and around the time of the Stonewall riots, um, drag queens were like the lowest of the low. They weren't allowed in a lot of bars. They weren't allowed to be seen. Most people didn't really want to be associated with them. So the Stonewall Inn was one of the only places that these individuals were actually allowed to go and were welcome. So even though the Genovese family bribed the police, that doesn't mean that all of them accepted the bribe and they would still like raid the bar, but the owners were usually tipped off before it actually happened. So on June 24th, 1969, the police raided the Stonewall Inn on the grounds of, quote, operating without a liquor license and arrested some of the employees and confiscated the alcohol. The police planned a second raid a couple days later in the hopes that it would just shut down the bar completely. So that brings us to the night of June 28th, 1969. Judy Garland was just buried and the people at the Stonewall Inn were upset. And according to one right-wing journalist, that just made them ready to fight, which isn't really the case, but that's just <laughs> how the story is perpetuated. So eight or so undercover police officers, six men and two women, raided the Stonewall Inn. Some things I read say six, others say nine, but... Um, eight is what I saw the most. They were really aggressive with the patrons, found more illegal alcohol, arrested 13 people, and they especially singled out the drag queens because in addition to like being looked down in the LGBT community, there were also gender appropriate clothing statutes in New York where you weren't allowed to dress like the other gender. Um, so officers would then us escort these suspected cross-dressers to the bathroom to check what was under their skirts and inside of their pants to make sure that they were dressing to their appropriate gender. But the patrons didn't leave. They hung around outside, and as the police continued their aggression towards them, they started getting really agitated. Now, here's where different accounts say some different things, but I'm going to go with... The account that I read the most while I was researching. So, one of the people that was arrested was a lesbian woman who was dressed rather masculinely, which again violated that gender appropriate clothing statute. So, she was handcuffed and escaped from police custody a few times, fought with multiple officers, and then complained that the handcuffs were too tight. And I guess 
this is the thing that tipped the police officers over. So one of them smacked her over the head with his baton and with her face like all bloody, she turned towards the crowd and screamed at them, why won't you do something? And the crowd responded. Now this one was never specifically identified, but some people believe that this woman was the lesbian activist and artist Stormy Delavier, which is someone that we will talk about more in the next episode. But regardless of if she is the one who started it or not, she did later say that it wasn't really a riot. She said, quote, it was a rebellion. It was an uprising. It was a civil rights disobedient, but it wasn't no damn riot. And this is something that's confirmed by a lot of other people who were actually there. So people who were there described it more as like a celebration at first. There was dancing in the street. They formed kick lines where they sang, quote, we are the Stonewall girls. We wear our hair in curls. We don't wear underwear to show our pubic hair. According to one interview that I watched, there were like four different guys <laughs> who sang this song. So it seemed pretty legit. Um, but it did turn to violence after that. So this like riot, non-riot was canalized by this person who may or may not have been stormy, but following the assault of this woman, people began throwing things at the cops, like change and bottles and rocks or possibly bricks, shoes, shot glasses. Some people slashed the tires of the police vans. So the perpetuating story that most people tell is that a trans woman of color named Marsha P. Johnson was inside when the cops started getting aggressive and she screamed i want my civil rights through a shot glass and shattered the mirror behind the bar and this was the shot glass that was heard around the world that started the violence of the riots and then another trans woman of color named Celia rivera was the first to throw a molotov cocktail so we're going to discuss this more in the next episode and the issues that surround this but that's the story that most people know and tell about how these riots got started. So when it started getting really violent, the police officers and some of the people that they were trying to arrest and a journalist from the Village Voice retreated into the Stonewall Inn and barricaded themselves inside for protection. But some of the rioters picked up parking meters and used them as battering rams while others made Molotov cocktails and set the building on fire. The flames were put out by the fire department and the tactical patrol force moved in, which is essentially just like the riot police. So protesters ran away, but then circled back around to trick the police and like popped up behind them and continued doing everything that they were doing. But eventually that first night, the crowd dispersed. No one was killed and only a very few officers reported minor injuries. But the protests continue. So the next night in June 29th, protesters returned back to the Stonewall Inn, which was not serving alcohol anymore. And they were on the street chanting things like gay power and we shall overcome. And the police came and broke up the crowd with violence and tear gas. The next couple days after, activists make the Stonewall Inn a meeting place and police return, but they aren't as violent with the activists and protesters as they were before. On July 2nd, it gets aggressive again when the protesters swarm outside of the office of the Village Voice, which was a local newspaper, for referring to the riots as, quote, the forces of faggotry. So people understandably wanted to burn the building down, um, but the crowd dispersed and that was really the end of the riots. So while this was the end of the riots, this wasn't the end of the fight for equal rights. Now, while there were already gay rights organizations like the Manachine Society, new organizations started popping up like the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Alliance, the Radical Lesbians and the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, which is obviously not terms that we would use today, but that organization was established by Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. So we will talk more about that next week. 
On June 28, 1970, on the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, the Christopher Street Liberation Day happened, which is the first Pride Parade that took place, encompassing thousands of people and stretching about 15 blocks beginning at the Stonewall Inn. During this time, activists used the pink triangle as a symbol for gay pride. The pink triangle was um, a way to identify homosexuals and other sexual predators during the concentration camps in Germany, um, which again really speaks to how people... (laughs) in the LGBTQ community were viewed during that time. I mean, this literally was like 25 or 30 years before these riots that people were, you know, being targeted specifically for being homosexual and being sent to concentration camps. And I read that even after these camps were liberated, the the homosexual community that was in the concentration camps were still tortured and were still you know, facing all of these awful circumstances when everyone else was liberated just because they were homosexual. So that same year, 1970, there were other Pride celebrations in Los Angeles and San Francisco, in Boston, Chicago. The Pride activism eventually spread throughout most of the Western world. Following this, LGBTQ people were openly taking government office positions like Kathy Kosachenko, which was the first out lesbian to take an office in Ann Harbor, Michigan in 1974. She was just the first out LGBTQ person in general to take office. And then we also have Harvey Milk in 1978, who became city supervisor in San Francisco. There is a movie about him called Milk, but I don't think I've seen it. I heard mixed reviews about it. Harvey Milk is also partially responsible for the rainbow flag. He asked an artist named Gilbert Baker to create an emblem that represented the pride movement, and he unveiled the rainbow flag at the Pride Parade in 1978. Now, I'm a huge fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I thought that Rocky being brought to life in a rainbow tank was like an homage to this, but the movie actually came out three years before this debuted, so I'm not sure if Gilbert was inspired by the movie or if it's just like this purely crazy random happenstance. In 1979, there was the first national march on Washington for LGBT rights. In the 1980s and 90s, the LGBT community received massive hits with the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. In 1981, the CDC reported a rare type of pneumonia found in five previously healthy gay men. This was, of course, HIV AIDS. Um, Now, the earliest case was in the 1930s, but the 1980s saw an epidemic with somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 people being affected by it, and it reached its peak in 1995. Because they noticed increased cases in the gay community, the CDC referred to HIV-AIDS as a gay-related immunodeficiency syndrome, which caused a lot of discrimination against the gay community, because people didn't really know how it was transmitted between people. When you say that it's similar to pneumonia, well, that is something that's respiratory that can be easily caught by breathing on someone or sneezing on someone or coughing on someone. So this led to travel bans. People got fired or kicked out of their schools. People were evicted. People lost their jobs all because they were diagnosed with HIV. And then 1987 saw the second national march on Washington for lesbian and gay rights. And this also marked the first national coverage of ACT UP, which was an AIDS organization that stands for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Their goal is to improve the lives of AIDS victims. And then in the early 90s, we have the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy in the military that was passed by President Clinton in 1993, but was overturned by President Obama in 2011. In 1992, a law passed that allowed gay and lesbian couples to be registered as domestic partners in Washington, D.C., 
but it wasn't like that everywhere in the states. In 1996, again, President Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act, which prevented marriage benefits to same-sex couples and allowed states to refuse same-sex marriage certificates. So, like, if someone got married in a state where gay marriage was legal and then moved to another state where it was not, their marriage could be considered null and void and they wouldn't get any of the benefits of being married. They wouldn't be able to be a beneficiary of that person if they were to die. This was actually overturned in 2012, largely attributed to the work of Edith Windsor. In 1994, there was a new anti-hate crime law that allowed a judge to impose a harsher sentence on crimes that were motivated by the victim's sexual orientation. And then this was added to in 2009 when President Obama signed what is known to most as the Matthew Shepard Act. Sodomy laws were decriminalized in 2003 when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Texas's anti-sodomy law. And in 2015, the Supreme Court made gay marriage legal in the United States. Part of the ruling read, no union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than they once were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal rights in the eyes of the law, and the Constitution grants them that right. When this was passed, people celebrated in the streets and some held signs that said it was all due to the first brick or shot glass at the Stonewall Inn in 1969. The next year in 2016, the Stonewall Inn became a national landmark. So while the rebellion of the Stonewall Inn was not the first or last movement for LGBTQ rights, it was a pivotal moment in history for the pride movement. And although the fight for equal rights is not fully complete in the United States and we still face discrimination, as a bisexual woman, I am so grateful to the fight of the generations past and everything that I've been able to witness in my lifetime with the overturning of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell and overturning of DOMA and just seeing how much love there can be everywhere. Thank you so much for listening today. If you have a story from history or mythology that you would like to hear me talk about, please reach out. You can email me at fdephistory at gmail.com or reach out on any of the social medias. I'm on all of them. It's just at fdephistory. And if you like the story that you heard today and want to hear more, please consider subscribing. That way you know when I release my next episode about some of the major people from the riots. And remember, history may be watching you, so don't fuck it up. Bye!